right, well, I am here with Patrick Deneen of the Post Liberal Order, also professor at Notre Dame, uh, University of Notre Dame. Uh, but before we get into this conversation, Patrick, do you kind of want to give people an introduction to who you are and what you do and, and uh, how you got to the point of, you know, writing several books and, and doing what you do today? Sure. Yeah. As you said, my name is Patrick Deneen. I'm a professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame. I've been here. This is now my 12th year at Notre Dame. Before this, I taught at uh, Georgetown University uh, for seven years. And my first academic position was at Princeton University for eight years. And I guess I got to this point like um, many academics do. I was inspired by great teachers. I loved ideas. I loved reading books um, and eventually got to the point where I thought I might have some things to say and uh, began writing some of my own books. My, my earlier books, most people don't know. Those were my more academic books, I guess. Uh, so I wrote a book on the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey as a work of political philosophy and as influencing the history of political thought. I wrote a book called Democratic Faith, which is a study of the kind of intersection of uh, theology and politics, especially as regards um, democratic theory. Uh, but the book that uh, I think has you here today, all the way out here in South Bend, was a 2018 book called Why Liberalism Failed. Uh, and that was the culmination of a lot of less academic writing, more um, kind of occasional writing. Uh, I was writing a blog at some points in the 2000s. I was writing for a couple of websites, including uh, one called Front Porch Republic. Uh, and then I was getting invited a lot to, to lecture undergraduates uh, at various institutions. And that book was really the culmination of writing for somewhat more, I'm not sure I'd say popular audience, but less narrowly academic audiences. Uh, and uh, was really kind of a compilation of a lot of different strands of thinking that I'd been doing over the course of a decade. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, that's, that's, that's me. Sweet. Yeah. So you, so you started a Substack with some guys called the post-liberal order and we'll get into what exactly post-liberalism is, but do you want to tell me how that Substack came to be? Who are, who are the people, who are the other people involved in that Substack? And I think you said it has around 10,000 subscribers. So it's been pretty successful. Yeah. We, we started it November, almost two years ago. Uh, yeah, it has about 10,000 subscribers. Uh, it's, um, you know, it's, it's become, I think, uh, a touchstone in a lot of contemporary debates, especially on the political right, uh, whether it's uh, uh, seen as a nefarious influence or as a, um, you know, an alternative way of seeing things. Uh, it was founded by four uh, Catholic thinkers, um, myself, uh, Gladden Papin, who at the time was at the University of Dallas, has now taken a position uh, with the Hungarian government. So he's actually emigrated out of the U.S. to, to Hungary. Uh, Chad Pecknold, who is a professor of theology at Catholic University of America, and Adrian Vermeule, who is a professor of law uh, at Harvard University. And we all have different interests and emphases, and yet have very similar worldviews in terms of where we thought, especially contemporary conservatism needed to, mm -hmm. to move. I would say that um, just to try to reduce it to kind of a nutshell, uh, we, are, we, we are, of course, strongly critical of the political left. Uh, and in some ways, you know, the ultimate sort of target, if you will, the ultimate subject of our critique are trends on the political left. But we think that the political right, as it was formed, especially in the Cold War period and, and sort of has continued through the Reagan years and the Bush years, 
the various Bush years, that it's no longer and probably was never equipped uh, to really combat where the left was moving. It's always been a kind of rear guard action, mm -hmm. kind of just following the left and being less, less progressive, if you would. Uh, but that ultimately was not able to combat uh, um, the kind of the, the trajectory of the left to where we're at now at, which is generating, you know, substantial societal disorder. Uh, and so the, the, the effort is really to say that there needs to be a much more robust understanding of the common good uh, and the willingness uh, and capacity to exercise political authority and political power to advance that. And of course, that's that an argument tends to be anathema on the kind of, we could say, the traditional or at least the recent American right that tends to be much more libertarian and yeah. authority phobic, I should say. Right. This is this is what's fascinating to me, because as a I mean, I'm a 24 year old from Madison, Wisconsin. I grew up in you know, I guess the Portland of the Midwest is what they say. So very progressive. And through my life, I feel like I've been trying to find what stream of conservatism I belong in. And you have kind of the Trump Republicanism. I don't even want to call it conservatism because I don't think it's conservative. And then you have kind of this libertarianism. And you talk about post-liberalism. Do you want to tell people, kind of give them a definition of what liberalism is and then lead into, you know, your philosophy on post-liberalism and, and what that is? Sure. Well, so liberalism, of course, it's going to depend, you know, ask 100 people, you'll get 200 definitions. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I would begin by saying liberalism is very clearly, it begins in the, uh, what we would describe as the classical liberal tradition that we would associate with figures like mm -hmm. John Locke and Adam Smith and mm -hmm. America, so some of America's founding fathers. Mm -hmm. uh, it is premised on the idea of kind of um, uh, individual autonomy as the core and essence of what what human beings and what human nature is. Uh, we are by nature rights bearing creatures, mm -hmm. uh, and so our rights act as trumps against not only all political authority but even each other. Mm -hmm. uh, that we are uh, that that sort of the social and political order exists to maximize our individual freedom. And the thing that all binds us together politically, socially, and otherwise is our kind of common agreement that we should all be as free as we want and as free as we're able to be without sort of damaging or harming each other. That's the famous John Mills harm principle, right? Do whatever you want, just don't harm anyone. And then we have debates over what constitutes harm. But a libertarian, a million, a liberal society will define harm in, let's just say, more and more um, uh, restricted ways. Mm -hmm. So it has to be really sort of provable. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, physical harm uh, becomes the, the measure, really. And so really anything that doesn't come to the surface as physical harm uh, becomes uh, permissible and even in some ways celebrated. Mm -hmm. uh, the more transgressive, the better. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, when we use, when we in the United States use the word liberal, we tend to use it to describe the left of the political scale. Now, the left of the political scale, scale arises from um, a different strand of the liberal tradition, although it has, of course, relationships. It's called liberal for a reason. And it especially emphasizes the liberation of people um, in the social domain. Uh, so classical liberalism especially emphasizes individual liberty in the political domain. Uh, so a, a limited government, as limited as possible. Uh, you know, Ayn Rand would have almost no government except right. police and, and an army. Uh, and of course, um, 
thoroughgoing liberty in the economic realm. Uh, and this is the, at the same time, classical liberals will often be described as conservative because they'll argue that this kind of order also needs a uh, a kind of a firm moral order mm -hmm. in the social and private domain. Yeah, what's fascinating about Ayn Rand is that it has, Ayn Rand's especially, uh, gosh, I can't remember, the, uh, Alice Shrugged has become sure. kind of this big, uh, kind of resurging in the political right again. And I read through it and I was like, this is great. This is amazing. I love all of this. And then my pastor's like, yeah, but you know that Ayn Rand had several affairs and was a terrible person and, is, and isn't actually like a true conservative at heart. She just didn't want anybody to do like tell her what to do, basically. And right. so this is it. This is what I think is fascinating about the the I mean, I call it maybe the Trump Republicanism of today is that it's it's detaching moral morality from responsibility in some capacity or something like that. And then they've totally jumped on this Ayn Rand bandwagon without knowing who she actually was as a, as a person. And I totally fell into that and I was, I was devastated yeah. to find out she was, I mean, yeah. She so was so Ayn Rand is interesting because of course she is a libertarian in the economic realm, but mm -hmm. she's also an extreme libertarian in the social realm. So yeah. for example, in, yeah. In Atlas Shrugged, it's not just that she has affairs, all of her characters yeah. have affairs. Right. Right? <laughs> uh, and moreover, there seems to be like, there's no children and there are no families yeah, right. in uh, in Ayn Rand's right. world. It's, it's just yeah. these radical, heroic individuals who are just mm -hmm. striving and doing their things. Mm -hmm. So Ayn Rand, in a way you could say, is this almost this perfect combination of what I've been describing as the classical liberal mm -hmm. tradition, which mm -hmm. emphasizes especially economic liberty. Mm -hmm. And the progressive liberal tradition, which emphasizes social liberty, which is to say uh, it's opposed. So progressive liberalism, what we call liberals or progressives, mm -hmm. is opposed to a radically free market. We know mm -hmm. right? it, it wants to have a much more managed market, a mm -hmm. much more uh, a marketplace that's much more uh, um, regulated, regulated yeah. uh, and which you have redistribution, which would be, of course, anathema to Ayn mm -hmm. Rand. But the main reason or among the main reasons it seeks to have that kind of a sort of government intervention in the market sphere is to allow people uh, and to give them the ability to be relatively and increasingly more free in the social realm. So it's not just equality. And in fact, progressives don't want complete equality. I know there are some Marxists and socialists out there, but the mainstream of progressivism doesn't want, it's not socialist in the, in the sort of extreme sense that it wants complete economic equality, it still wants some degree of a market system. But what it does want, above all, I would argue, is for the ability of every human being to be free of any unchosen relationships or commitments or obligations that limit their individual freedom in the social realm. And this means freedom from your family. This means freedom from a spouse. This means freedom from children. This means freedom from a religion, yeah. from one's community, from whatever one's tradition and culture is. And of course, that's really been the progressive project of the last 50 years. It hasn't been terribly successful necessarily at creating a fair economy, but it's certainly been successful at creating a robustly individualistic social realm. Yeah, something that was fascinating to me, I don't know if you've read Carl Truman's The Rise and Triumph of the Modern sure. Self. It was fascinating reading through that, that the something that helped perpetuate this kind of what he called, calls expressive individualism, um, very progressive philosophy. Something that perpetuated that in some ways was the free market capitalism in helping create all Absolutely. of these new technologies in the industrial revolution. You know, now you're not bound to staying at home with your family. You don't have to, you know, you, there's a, Christians will say, Jesus never traveled a hundred miles away from where he grew up. Well, 
I can go, you know, a thousand miles away and I can just get up and, and leave if I need right. to, or if I want to. And I think that's certain on, there's certain unintended consequences to the free market and to capitalism. And, and I think it was just fascinating while reading that. Cause I was like, Oh my goodness, you know, it, it kind of proves a certain fallen nature of man that even when you try to do something really good, you have unintended bad consequences from it. And I think that the advancements in technologies have really perpetuated this. Sure. Yeah. And this is why um, I would say that what we, what I'm describing as liberalism, we often in the US will call it conservative versus liberal. We'll describe classical liberalism as conservative, but classical liberalism, what we call conservative is liberalism because Mm -hmm. it's about the liberation of the individual, especially in the marketplace. And this is why I think both of both of the sides of what we now think of, or at least have thought of as the political spectrum, are effectively liberal. Mm. And so when we're discussing what liberalism, I don't mean this to be a description of the political left, mm. uh, but really a kind of description of the what fundamentally binds together and makes common the classical liberal tradition and the progressive liberal tradition. Mm. And arguably, and this is what I argue in the Why Liberalism Failed book, arguably these two sides of those opposing, supposedly opposing parties, the economic libertarianism and the social libertarianism have actually been the two parts of the agenda that have been advanced over the last 50 years. Mm -hmm. And so we have um, an increasingly liberal society. Mm -hmm. And that's why I regard this project as having failed, because it turns out that this is not really what allows human flourishing. Right. I mean, I thought it was, I thought the paradoxical point that you made that liberalism failed because it succeeded was I never thought of it that way that it actually set out to do something and it achieved that goal and that's why it's not great and that's and so that was that was interesting I also want to ask when Barack Obama put this on his 2018 this book on his 2018 uh, favorite reads this is why liberalism failed yeah yeah, yeah. why liberalism failed did you did you get any sort of heads up from from them or did this just happen out of nowhere were you surprised what was what yeah, was going I was, on i was surprised yeah <laughs> um i was surprised and yet i mean i know that barack obama reads books and mm-hmm. he i think at that point had been for a couple of summers making lists of books that he had read over the summer and then he would comment on them uh so i was surprised and i suppose you know from a standpoint of selling books delighted about it uh but you know he did make a point of ending his little mini not even review but just a few sentences of commentary about my book uh, by saying he disagreed with my conclusions um it's interesting to me that um he i mean he read the book and has some positive things to say about it because i'm critical of him at various points in the book especially among other things, his uh, campaign advertisement, The Life mm. of Julia, which I don't know if your listeners will know this, but they can Google it. Uh, the Life of Julia was a campaign ad. It was entirely online, but it was about, it portrayed sort of how various government programs had allowed this fictional young woman, Julia, to lead a life which was by the definition of a kind of Barack Obama world, a life that was a good life mm. from kindergarten until close to death. Mm-hmm all these government programs had allowed her effectively to live this life in which she was able to benefit from financial support and various programs. But the underlying message was, this is what will allow you to be free of any other human being. Mm. And the interesting thing about that whole, this kind of slideshow that accompanied Mm. all of the praising of the various programs that helped young women and old women in particular, was how they could could be liberated Mm. from any attachments that might bind them or limit that right. 
Um, Which has been, I mean, liberation is a big talking point of the, of the progressive. Absolutely. So this, I think really was a kind of exemplar of how progressive liberalism, um, although it has roots in a much more, we could say, solidaristic um, Mm -hmm. uh, philosophical tradition, it has really taken on extreme libertarian uh, dimension. Mm -hmm. And that's because for people to be able to be genuinely free Mm -hmm. in the view of the progressive, they have to be free of the social mm-hmm. bind, the kind of the things that bind us socially to each other, family life, children, yeah, spouses, etc. Right. Now, it turns out that these are the parts of human life that are most difficult mm-hmm. to free ourselves from. Like, how do you free yourself from your parents or, <laughs> you know, right. can you really be free right. if you don't have a family, if you don't, right. you know, if you, if you don't, if you don't get married, mm. are you free if you don't have children? I mean, I guess, I guess at one level you don't have obligations, but mm. you know, for a long time in human history, for most of human history, children would take care of their parents mm. when they got older. So our, this form of freedom now requires massive social engineering because it means we're basically tinkering with the most elemental aspects of human life. So while classical liberalism could argue that all we need is for government to sort of recede, to sort of leave us alone, laissez-faire, progressive liberalism argues we need government really to advance because only through a lot of kind of social intervention, whether it's through these kinds of programs that allow people not to have to worry about family, not to have to worry about community or church and so forth. It also means that government will have to have an increasing hand in forcing these institutions Mm -hmm. to redefine themselves on the basis of this kind of voluntarist freedom. And this is why some of the most hot button issues today have to do with family, church, and of course, human sexuality. Mm -hmm. Because of course, these are the areas of life where there's sort of the least amount of completely free autonomous Mm -hmm. choice. And, you know, we generally have believed for all of human history, you don't get to choose your gender. Right. And now we're at the point where this is now being, you know, advanced as the as the basic norm of what a human civilization mm. is. You're not you're not limited mm. in your selection of what you define yourself as. It's interesting. They talk. I mean, I think the progressives talk a lot about liberation and freedom, but I don't hear them talk about yeah, liberation and freedom from what? Because there's been also there's been studies that have shown that women who don't have don't get married, don't have children by the time they be, get to their 50s, 60s, 70s, they're retired from from the workplace. Uh, they're they're more the women who don't have a family are more depressed and potentially even suicidal than the women who have built the family. Uh, and I've I mean that's that's not a freeing life stage to be in. That's that's a very I guess oppressive d- depression. Suicide is very sure. oppressive. And so well, this of course this gets to the core of your first question, which is how would I define liberalism? And liberalism, of course, the word means or comes derives from the Latin word libertas, which mm-hmm. means freedom, which mm-hmm. means to be free, mm-hmm. liberty. But it's a very particular understanding of what freedom is. Mm-hmm. In this understanding, freedom is freedom from. It's the freedom from anything, any external obstacle to do what I want. But liberty is not a new concept. It's not a modern concept. Liberty, the concept of liberty pre-existed liberalism. Mm-hmm. But what it meant was in some ways the opposite of how liberalism describes it or defines it. What it meant was the freedom that one achieves through a well-lived, self-disciplined life, mm-hmm. through the practice and exercise of virtue, right? So for the Bible, for Plato, for Aristotle, for Aquinas, in the classical tradition and the Christian tradition, one isn't free when one is freed of obstacles. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the dream of Satan. Mm-hmm. Right. One's free right. when one has, in some ways, submitted to right rule and right, right law. Right. That's when one is free, right? Uh, 
Christ promises to set us free, that doesn't mean we're going to be free of all right. commitments and, and bonds. You become a, a slave to Christ. And you become You're no exactly longer a slave right. to sin. You, That's you, exactly right. And this interesting, I mean, you even look back to uh, John Adams has the quote that I'm going to paraphrase and probably botch a little bit, but that, uh, you know, a democratic republic will not work unless it's under a society, governed by a society that is virtuous, that there's right. some sort of underlying virtue and uh agreed upon communal virtue within the entire society that this is actually just freedom to do whatever you want wasn't even the it doesn't seem like it was the purpose of what the founding fathers are trying to do in america that there was certain values and um you know freedom to go and like pursue virtue and to go Mm -hmm. to church and to go start families and to go worship how you how you wanted to but you're doing something that is that is kind of surrounded by virtue we've totally thrown that out i think the newer generations have yeah yeah no i mean virtue um becomes a uh increasingly um a word with negative connotations Mm -hmm. uh and understood pejoratively because it seems old-fashioned right how how long should your skirt be or something yeah that virtue is fundamentalist as as arbitrary you know kind of impositions Mm -hmm. on my freedom so i think it's precisely you can see how this switch occurs from liberty understood as the achievement mm-hmm. of a certain kind of self-rule and submission to to law that exists right outside of oneself, mm-hmm. ultimately to God, that that's what freedom is. To now, freedom is really being free from all of that, mm-hmm. uh, is, to be, is to be liberated from all of that. So, so that this is a long way of answering your first question of yeah. what is liberalism? Liberalism is a society organized around that understanding and definition of liberty right and i think that that society that liberal society also it it doesn't necessarily achieve this great uh liberation and freedom and i think it creates new doctrines of course and new rules and regulations that are unspoken and new taboos you know for instance for my generation it's what's your pronouns you know that's kind of an assumed rule if you aren't abiding by other people's pronouns you're breaking a doctrine of of their right. sort of philosophical religious viewpoint on on right. gender. And right. So choosing your pronoun like, that's already that's the commitment to complete liberation. Yeah. Right. I get right. to define what I am, who I am, right. how you perceive me. Mm-hmm. Now, if you don't agree that this is what constitutes my freedom, you're a big. You are yeah. now <laughs> right. well. You're oppressing me. Your right. understanding. Yeah. Right. is now contrary to that of the regime. Mm-hmm. So you can now be oppressed. So in other words, no regime, there's no political order and there's no social order mm-hmm. that doesn't exist without certain strictures mm-hmm. and limitations and ultimately exercise of authority. So this gets us to post-liberalism, which is that it begins with the recognition there is no free society. There is no society that exists without authority. Mm-hmm. It's always going to be a question of to what end is authority exercised? To what end does law exist? Uh, how are we shaping the political and social order and how are people being shaped, formed, influenced by that order. And in the post-liberal understanding, which is really a way of updating and trying to um, think anew about an older tradition, it's really trying to appeal to the idea that human beings are ordered to the good, Mm -hmm. to the common good, and to the good of what it is to be a human being. And this does require formation and virtue mm. and it does mean that we have to have authoritative institutions you have to uh, say no to passions yeah 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 you you wrote an article recently called a uh, party of commitment and i thought this was really interesting as my, my wife and i have been talking a lot about greed and what what is greed i'm doing a podcast with a professor from denver seminary on greed uh for our theology podcast and 
you kind of showed uh, a polls showing what Americans value. And at number one, it was money. And then it was religion, patriotism, having children. And then at five, it was community involvement. Um, but, you know, none of those reached over 50%. They were all 43 or under. This is interesting. The one, the one that Democrats and Republicans agreed on was money. And that's that number one as spot. The, as the most important value. Yeah, yeah as the mm -hmm. most important value over mm -hmm. religion, you know, mm -hmm. say family, community, like having children, yeah. patriotism. Mm -hmm. Why? Why is that the thing that both yeah. sides are able to come together on? Well, the first thing to note is that this poll has been taken now over the course of, I don't know, uh, 30, 40 years, mm -hmm. uh, regularly, every, every decade or so. Mm -hmm. So this poll was published in the Wa uh, Wall Street Journal, I think, um, several months ago. And at the same time, they published it and were sort of remarking on the striking, these striking findings. Uh, what was also noteworthy is that 10 years ago and 20 years ago, these numbers were completely flipped. In other oh, words, yeah. there was the top rank, most important value yeah. for people was patriotism, religion, family, community a bit lower. And at the bottom was money, mm. was having money. So 20, 25, 30 years ago, the ranking was totally flipped. So in the last 30, 40 years, what we have seen is a complete revaluation of values, to use the Nietzschean term, right? A complete change of the value system of regardless of one's political party, uh, of what, what it is Americans say that they value the most. And I think this is yet further evidence of my thesis that liberalism has uh, failed because liberalism has succeeded. Uh, so first, in a liberal world, you're going to value less anything that requires or expects you to have certain kinds of commitments that are recall on forms of self-sacrifice or commitment to um, other people outside of yourself, long-standing commitments like family or patriotism, mm -hmm. the willingness to serve your country, even die for your country. All of these forms of commitment have declined. And this is something that social science shows us. Right? Robert Putnam in his book, Bowling Alone, way back in 1995, was already showing these declining forms of association mm -hmm. and relationship. And what we see across the board is that the one defining feature of sort of modern, increasingly modern society is the aloneness, is the mm -hmm. solitariness of, of people in Western liberal democracies. As a result of that, as a result, you could say of the, we could say the manifestation of the logic of this political and social order, which tells us that we can only be free if we're free of other human beings. And so these statistics sort of demonstrate this is what will happen. Mm -hmm. At the same time, well, what happens logically and necessarily? What can you fall back on? What can you rely upon in such a world in which you have decreasing likelihood of being someone who has a shared commitment to one's country, to one's community, mm -hmm. have a religious life, and certainly have a family life, right? Mm -hmm. We know people aren't getting married. They aren't having children. Well, what will take the place of that is money, right? In fact, that's probably the only thing that will prevent you from falling into, um, you know, complete helplessness, mm. right? In a world without those kinds of connections in which you can't call someone up, a friend, a member of your family at 3 a.m. because you're, you're in pain or, you know, you're having heartache or whatever it is. In such a world, the only thing that prevents you from being in a condition of complete social helplessness is to have money. So money becomes the buffer and the essential ingredient 
mm. of what will replace all of those commitments. Mm. So I think this was the thing that struck me about that data, um, at least as raw data. In other words, if you dig down, you start to yeah. see differences between the parties. And I think that's what you're mm. you're reflecting on. Uh, and that that to me mm. was interesting. And I well, we can talk a little bit more about that if you want. Yeah. But. Yeah, yeah. What what were the differences? Because I I know that the number one spot was it was money on each on yes. each side, which yeah. which was interesting. But then how did that stack up? Because I don't have it up right here. Yeah, I'm I'm also recalling it from memory, and you can you can look on the post liberal order website mm -hmm. on that article, party of commitment. Um, because what I wanted to point out in that was that as a general rule and phenomenon, when you broke down the particular respondents by political party, mm. people who self-identified as Republicans ranked um, family, religion, and patriotism higher mm. than people who self-identified as Democrats. Mm. The only thing that ranked higher among Democrats than Republicans on the non-money category yeah. was community. Community, right. Which, Which was, was that was for millennials. That was yeah. a huge thing. Yeah. Yeah. That was interesting. Um, but I would argue that anyone who has commitments to family and religion and, and nation probably also at some levels also has a commitment right. to community. They may right. not like the word because of, yeah. they associate it with Obama and community organizing. Mm -hmm. So I think yeah. the word is off-putting. But in reality, people who have commitments mm -hmm. to these institutions of religion, family, and nation also mm -hmm. are committed in some ways to the community. What struck me about this is that maybe the defining difference today about between Republicans and Democrats, we could say it's a lot of things, but one of them uh, is that there's at least a kind of residual, I would argue, conservative or traditional commitment to those forms of human relationality that we would we might describe as the sort of social fabric. Mm -hmm. Again, religious institutions and practice, uh, um, family life, having children, being parents, expecting to get married and, and to be parents, uh, and to to have a commitment to one's nation. Uh, no. and, and so I, and I just say this because this comes in the wake of what many regarded as the very surprising election of Glenn Youngkin in Virginia yeah, um, right. in, what was that, 2022? That was 2020. 2020, yeah. thank you. Yeah, 2020, um, in which it was clear that what tilted an election and what people were regarding as increasingly a sort of default blue state and against uh, someone who had already served as governor of Virginia and had a higher mm -hmm. name recognition, Terry McAuliffe, that really what tilted that election were parents. Mm -hmm. Parents who were upset about both the COVID restrictions, the lockdowns, the kind of masking, the closure of the schools, the kind of ongoing resistance of teachers mm -hmm. to have children as well as what was taking place in the schools, right? right? The kind of, right. you know, indoctrination of mm -hmm. BL, you know, Black Lives uh, Matter, CL, critical theory, critical, and, critical race yeah. theory, and so forth. And so, if there is a future of, let's say, um, a kind of anti woke mm -hmm. political movement, mm -hmm. it's going to be if people have children. It's going to be people who have children. And I mean, that the, seemed right. that seemed just clear to me that that the difference uh, of uh, if there's going to be a future that's not going to move in this increasingly, I think just fragmenting political order and social order, it's going to have to be a party of commitment. And this is why I think anyone who's interested in something, conserving something and preserving these kinds of institutions and commitments can't just be about, we just need the state to stay out of our lives. It has to actually be, have a positive vision that says, we need to make it 
um, we need to make sure that our public policy as well as our deepest commitments are about forming families. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there should be, that it should be uh, as easy to form a family in the United States today as it is not to form a family. Mm-hmm. Uh, that should be the commitment of mm-hmm. the of the conservative party, mm-hmm. and which at the moment is somewhat the Republicans, although not much the Republicans. Right. But really, that was the article was to say, look, if you're interested mm-hmm. in having a certain vision of society, it's going to have to be built around these, you know, shoring up the practices that foster these kinds of commitments. Yeah, I've told this story before, and it's I think it's fascinating. I was, oh gosh, it might have been 2020. Some friends and I went to see uh, Donald Trump rally. Well, he was running in 2020. We went to see him in uh, Wisconsin, and we were in line waiting to get in. There's a bunch of people there, really nice. And, uh, you know, we were younger, and so they were like, a couple of them were like, hey, why, why are you young guys here? We don't see a lot of young people at these things. And we were like, well, you know, we, we like Trump, whatever. We think he's better than Biden, yada, yada, yada. And the, uh, the, the people said they went in these, this group of probably 50, 60 year olds. They were like, yeah, well, when my kids went to the public schools, you know, they turned totally liberal and progressive and they just started railing on, on the public schools. And I was like, I said, and I, I, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't have said this, but I was like, didn't you guys choose to send your kids to the public schools? Did, couldn't you had them for 18 years? Couldn't you have done something else? And they turned their backs. I mean, wouldn't talk to me the rest of the time. And that, that was kind of a great awakening for me in my mind. Cause I was like, oh my gosh, the party of personal responsibility, work hard. You can do this on your own. Well, once they're confronted with the decisions that they had made in sending their kids to the public schools, they didn't want to deal with that because it was a it was a failure in their parenting. And they didn't I know that that's probably difficult to deal with. But the reason why I'm telling the story is because I think that one of the main driving factors in this ultra progressive individualistic philosophy is the public school system and is um, all the way, you know, from the university all the way down to now, you know, kindergarten, they're teaching some of this crazy ide- uh, gender ideology. And so. You work in the university. Uh, one, are you seeing this stuff? I know you're in a Catholic university, but are you seeing this stuff there? And two, is it, it feels like the institute, there's so many institutions that are completely infested with this individualistic, uh, liberal and progressive ideology that when I look at my generation, I'm like, I, even the people who say that they're conservatives, they aren't. They're actually liberals who think that they're conservatives because they like Trump or something like that. What do we do? What what do conservatives actually do? What would your your argument be? What's the next step in conservatism to fight back against the public school in- mm-hmm. institution? Well, so in the first instance, I think that the public schools are always going to reflect the dominant view of the regime. So yeah. I don't think it's necessarily public schools in themselves that are bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm a product of public schools, sure, and I actually, right. when I was, you know, it seems like ages ago in a different world, yeah. but um, uh, I was. Uh, it was a different kind of public school, right? I mean, yeah. we would start the day off Pledge of Allegiance and mm-hmm. our teachers would read us whatever the Connecticut state proclamations mm-hmm. were on that day. Wow. And, you know, we would sing My Country Tis of Thee. I mean, mm-hmm. it was a very different, you know, we yeah. would celebrate the holidays and you have the teachers would explain who George Washington and Abraham Lincoln was, yeah. you know, so it was a, it, I don't, I don't, I'm not one of those people and you didn't uh, have because to I come your... from a different generation, but I don't think public schools are inherently right. bad. It's uh, public schools, like almost every other aspect of a regime mm-hmm. of an order of a political mm-hmm. order are going to reflect the commitments of that political order. And we become right. a much more increasingly liberal 
political order over time. So there was a still a remnant of a kind of more traditional worldview, and that was embodied in a lot of the teachers, certainly that I had as a kid, who had deep, these were people formed in the World War II generation. Mm -hmm. They had a deep respect for what it was this country was mm -hmm. and what it had achieved and where it came from. And they thought that was important to pass that on. So education, rightly, at least from a conservative standpoint, is to a significant extent familiarizing the next generation with what they're inheriting, mm -hmm. you know, what they should be grateful for and, and to have a sense of gratitude and obligation toward what they've inherited. Mm -hmm. And I think today what we have is an educational system and a set of presuppositions that wants to teach us the opposite, that, that not, only have we, not only should we not spend a lot of time talking about what we've inherited, but that we view the past as a kind of dark place, as a place of evil yeah. and a place of um, oppression mm -hmm. and limitation mm -hmm. that has to be overcome so that it's the story of progress and a kind of progressive liberation mm -hmm. from the darkness and, and enchainment mm -hmm. of the past. That's a... You know, of course, that's, again, a, a flip. It completely reverses the way in which you could say education can and ought to be undertaken in a more traditional and conservative society. And I would say Notre Dame as a Catholic institution is kind of it's a mixed bag because mm -hmm. we have a lot of faculty and a lot of students nowadays who are both shaped and want to advance the modern ladder, that ladder form of what education is. And mm -hmm. certainly you can certainly find it um, in in plentiful quantity on, on the Notre Dame campus. But there are still a lot of faculty and there are a lot of students who, you know, kind of bound and and committed to that uh, Catholic tradition, see the university as a place where we pass something on, mm -hmm. right? Tradition literally means from the from the Latin traducere, it means literally to pass on, to, mm -hmm. to, to, to take something and give it to somebody else. So it is literally to pass on an inheritance. Now you tell me we're recording this in South Bend. You're listening to my dog in the background <laughs> panting. Sorry we'll about that. We'll see if they can hear it, yeah. Uh, if, you hear, if you hear heavy I'll breathing, it's featuring my, Patrick yeah, Denise and, my, and, and dog. my dog, Stella. <laughs> Uh, but one of the things that, uh, when you go visit campus today, mm -hmm. uh, if you enter through the main gate, you'll pass a cemetery mm -hmm. on the left side of the main road onto campus. And I always point out to students, I said it is really a kind of a deep form of sort of, you could say, architectural mm -hmm. uh, and kind of, you know, the sort of uh, the, 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 the form of the university mm -hmm. is a way of teaching you that you can't enter this institution without first recognizing the debt you owe mm. to the people who have lived before us. I think it's a wonderful yeah. way to sort of enter the Notre Dame campus. Yeah. I that's wish, good. yeah, I mean, that's awesome. I wish every church and institution in America did that. I think that's something that even, you know, I, I remember when I was younger, uh, we did do the same thing, Pledge of Allegiance. By the time I was in second grade, I could name every president from George yeah. Washington to George Bush. And there was a flip when I got to like middle school and I don't really know how it just flipped really quickly to America has flaws, but it's a great country to America has flaws and it's a terrible country. And it always has been a terrible country. We need to revolutionize this. And it kind of just flipped on me. I mean, it was like one year it was great. Next year, America's terrible. And so, yeah. uh, and one of the things that I think was lost through several years of my life was a respect or reverence or care for the people who had come before me right. and had paved the way in all these different things that I had taken for granted. And that was, and I think that that's one of the bigger uh, problems with the younger generation. I think there's a story during the 2020 riots uh, in Madison, Wisconsin, there's, you know, they're tearing down statues yeah. and destroying everything. And there was a statue of a, of a Norwegian 
uh, white man mm-hmm. down by the Capitol, and they yeah. just tore it, was, it down. It was a Civil War abolitionist. Yes, exa- mm-hmm. the irony, and they yep. didn't know anything right. about right. that, and right. they just tore it down because it's a white guy. Yeah. And man, that's like if that isn't the picture of right. what is happening, you know, what my generation and what these younger generations are, I don't know what is, and it's very sad because that guy's a hero. You know, he doesn't deserve to be torn yeah. down. So it is, it's, you know, it's very much, um, you know, it's a part of certainly my, my tradition, the Catholic tradition, to be sort of steeped in the idea that the past is the place of a kind of treasure. It's a treasure trove. It's mm. a deposit uh, uh, that is a rich font for us always to renew ourselves uh, and, to, and from which we can more deeply understand where and when we are. Mm. But in a society defined by the idea of liberty that we talked about earlier, uh, or idea of freedom from any limiting aspect, well, one of the things that's the most limiting is the past, right? Uh, we have to free ourselves from the limitations mm. of the past. Archaic. So, so we become yeah. increasingly hostile mm-hmm. to anything that suggests that you aren't completely a self-making human being, right? And what's more of an insult to the idea that I'm a self-making human Mm. being than the idea that somehow there are things that predate my existence that limit what I can make of myself, Mm. that, you know, may influence what I can make Mm. of myself. So it's not just that you become ignorant about the past, you have to become hostile to the past. So uh, this is just a question that popped into my head. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but would would you say that if you were to make a critique of Protestantism, it would be a similar critique that you've made to liberalism in in the sense that one of the things that I've even been frustrated as a Protestant growing up in low church, evangelical churches my whole life, um, that's been frustrating for me is that there has been in the in the backlash against Catholicism, there was a almost forgetting about the uh, the past, the, forgetting about the tradition and the great theological feats that had come from the Catholic Church beforehand. Uh, and it was almost like we started fresh and lost some of that great mm-hmm. tradition. Um, and well, obviously would, the, yeah. the Protestant argument would be, yes, but the Catholics elevated tradition too high, whatever. So do you would you make a similar critique to Protestantism that you would make to liberalism and kind of put those two hand in hand in certain ways? Or, or what would you, what would you say? No, I don't want to put you on no, the spot. I don't want to be, uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to be non-ecumenical here, but I may as well. Well, no, you wouldn't be that you're not the first person to recognize that at a very deep theological level, this political critique of course also implicates strands of and aspects of the Protestant tradition, mm. uh, which, you know, you can make you could certainly make an argument and I wouldn't make this a blanket case, but you can make an argument that there are strands of the Protestant tradition that feed directly into the individualistic ethos of modern liberalism. In other words, you don't get modern liberalism without Protestantism preceding mm. it and certain strands of Protestantism. Mm. So the idea that you know each man is own priest, the idea that we are... Uh, we all must be our own interpreter of the Bible, that, that uh, precisely that tradition has to be overturned. There's a kind of iconoclasm, and kind of we need to break the past, throw away all these accreted traditions that obscure us from what we genuinely understand ourselves to be. Personal so, conviction is the greatest virtue. Yeah. And, yeah. And, so, yeah. I mean, these are all strands that are um, uh, feeding into mm-hmm. the political formation of liberalism. And it's not an accident that every figure that I named who is responsible for the, you know, being the architects of the liberal tradition are also really ardent Protestants 
and in many cases are also deeply anti-Catholic. I mean, hmm. you know, John Locke argues in his widely celebrated book, uh, The Letter Concerning Toleration, which is that we can tolerate anyone. We can tolerate any Protestant. Mm. We can tolerate any Jew, any any uh, Muslim. The one group of people <laughs> we cannot tolerate are Catholics. Yeah. So yeah. the limitation was clear yeah. that there is a, there is a, but I think this, this links back to what we were talking about earlier. The logic of this, the logic of this understanding is that anyone ultimately who will stand in opposition to the realization of this ever more radicalized ideal of the f completely free individual human being, that person will need to be oppressed. Mm -hmm. That person has to be disallowed. So right now in our political context, we're now speaking about this in what, uh, uh, where are we now? September of- uh, Yeah, September. Um, September of 2023. 2023 right. So you know, right now, the conservative party or many figures in the conservative party or so-called conservative party are arguing that we are experiencing oppression. We conservatives are experiencing oppression, cancellation, mm. you know, political oppression, social oppression, economic oppression because of this authoritarianism on the left. Mm -hmm. But this, this diagnosis is partly true. It's a partial truth, but it's only partial because the, the so-called conservatives today are also liberals. Yeah. And so their diagnosis understands, yes, we're experiencing this authoritarian oppression, but what sh one should notice is the oppression is being exercised against those who at some level want to claim and defend the idea that there is an authority, there is a reality, there is an order, right? Human, human beings are created man or woman. Mm -hmm. There is a God. There is something to which we must submit ourselves as a natural law. It's these people who are being oppressed. So freedom isn't really the answer, right? The argument is not that we need to be more free. The argument is actually we need more order and yeah. we, need, we, need, uh, we need to recognize rightful right. authority and rightful natural law. And simply to say we need more freedom is actually in a weird way to be adopting the argument of the other side, mm. which is saying we just want to be free. We want to be free of all oppression. We want to be free of the oppression of gender of sexuality, of any kind of idea of a marriage between a man and a woman. We want to be free in every respect. And then to make the claim, well, the way we argue against this to say we want freedom, well, you can see how you're just handcuffed in being able to rightly diagnose what's happening. And then to rightly diagnose it means that you can actually begin to make arguments and claims and political uh, um, policies and so forth against this position. Yeah, and I think what I've seen in being, I mean, obviously I was in a Republican campaign in Minnesota for a couple of years and talking to a lot of modern Republicans is that I think part of the problem is they don't have any sort of conceptual understanding of what freedom is in a biblical sense or what, like they say they believe in God and a lot of them will say that they're Christians, but they have no theology or really, really poor theology on what these concepts of liberty, freedom, where they come from, what is dignity, why why is it that we should be against abortion? And why is it that when there's a Republican debate like a week or two ago and there was a question on abortion and none of the none of the Republican candidates, the so-called conservative candidates, could say anything other than there needs to be a 15 week up, you know, you can have abortion up to 15 weeks. I'm like that. My, I think my wife is 15 weeks pregnant right now. Mm -hmm. And I think the baby is able to like suck their thumb. There's it's a human mm -hmm. being. And yeah. none of these cowards are able to say, this is actually just murder point right. blank period, because they have no understanding of what dignity is. They don't actually understand that dignity is 
the precursor to liberty. And right. you can't detach those two things, which was so one of my is, issues with yeah. libertarianism and their argument against uh, against um, abortion as well. You can't detach those two concepts. You have to hold them together. This is, I, mean, I think maybe this might be the, the paramount example of where the kind of freedom or liberty agenda of the of the conservative party or the Republican party, I should say, which is not often very conservative, but the, the freedom agenda of the Republican party has actually ill served the pro-life cause. Now, you know, many people would rightly point out, well, we overturned Roe versus Wade. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, they, the the ground was prepared and well prepared Mm -hmm. uh, for overturning Roe on the basis of kind of a technicality, Mm -hmm. right? The decision was badly decided. It's not, it ultimately was not ground in the constitution. And I think that's correct. I think it was a, Technically a bad decision, but what was not prepared was, and the pro-life movement did not prepare this very well in part, I shouldn't say the pro-life movement, but the Republican party didn't prepare this very well because it would constantly speak in the language of freedom. Well, guess what? When it comes to abortion, the language of freedom is owned by the left. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. the freedom to do what I want with my body. Mm -hmm. It's the freedom to, you know, to define what I think a human being is as long as, you know, I'm, I'm. You know, it's in my body. Right. I can do with my body whatever right. I want. Mm-hmm. So the language of freedom actually ill-prepared uh, the Republican Party to be ready for the moment, if the moment came, that had been wished for supposedly for 50 plus years of overturning Roe to be able to then robustly make the argument that a human being is a person of dignity no matter what part of the lifespan they're in, whether it's the earliest moments or the last moments. And deserves, because we are people who care, we are obligated to each other, we're people of commitment, right? Go back to patriotism, Mm -hmm. community, uh, family, and so forth. Because we're people of commitment, we don't simply say anyone can be sacrificed to my interest. Mm -hmm. Well, that could have been an argument Mm -hmm. that the Republican Party was making, but they weren't because, of course, in the end of the day, they are also liberals. Yeah, and there's this almost addiction within the Republican Party to trying to find a quote-unquote compromise. You know, well, we have to work with the left here, and the left doesn't give a crap about compromising. The political left, they just care about fulfilling this ultimate goal of, of liberalism and liberation in that the more that we count, we say 15 weeks, well, then it'll be 30 weeks. Then it'll be, you know, then it'll be full-term abortions and it never ends. And for some reason, Republicans can't figure this out. I've wondered is, is the reason for that. So what I've noticed, and I think what everybody is noticing with, with, you know, all of our technology, with social media through the last 150 years, the way that media has been consumed and information has been consumed has been segmented every 25, 30 sure. years. So you got, you know, people reading books and then you have radio, TV, YouTube, now TikTok. And so your 30 second, uh, you know, bits of information are being thrown at you. And I've, I've found that it is almost impossible to have conversations with people who are on this stuff all the time, Sure, but everybody's on it. And on the right, everybody's on it as well on TikTok. And they're getting these bits of information that they think is this highly intellectual stuff that's honestly not, it's kind of just fluff most of the time because nobody can understand the complexities of politics in the 32nd bit. And they don't want to do the hard work of, of reading and talking with new people and, and really challenging their ideas. They want to, I mean, revert to certain tribalistic tendencies and kind of everybody affirm each other's, 30 second sound bits and it's and i think that that plays into it i don't know if that's if that's a result of of liberalism it probably is in some ways uh but it it's kind of just seems like almost we're a victim and i don't want to use a victim mentality but of just the 
uh, the the technological advancements that we didn't expect or we didn't know what was coming from it um, has made the right incapable of having conversa- intellectual conversations or reading l- books. A lot of people haven't read a book in five years. So Yeah. Yeah. So I think um, maybe we're talking about two different things. I mean, you said segmentation. And so I think mm-hmm. there's always a danger of simply being only exposed to people who, you know, as they say today, share your priors, right? Yeah. That uh, uh, people who only are reinforcing the things you already think. And then without any kind of a genuine challenge to those views, you tend to just, um, yeah, become unthinking. They just become, you know, sort of automatic or knee jerk mm-hmm. kind of reactions. Uh, but then there's another problem, and which I think compounds and maybe exacerbates and makes much worse uh, this this tendency of human beings to want to like seeking like, mm. which is the reduction of um, our capacity to think and to reflect and to contemplate. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, that that we are suffused in these sort of technological forms of communication today. Uh, and let's face it; I mean, when we talk about technology. Everything you just mentioned, books, radio, television, that's all technology. technology right. It's all technology. Uh, yeah, so when we use yeah. technology, we use right. it in a very narrow sense. Yeah. And the technology that we are increasingly drawn to and using is technology that sort of makes us ignorant. It, it right. renders us uh, and, in fact, shapes our minds and brains to be increasingly incapable of reflecting and thinking. And it's been proven by sort of brain studies of the of the ways in which um, especially sort of cell phones and screens and so forth is actually rewiring our brains to be less capable of sustaining complex thought which may be over yeah, a long term works of time. in liberalism's favor right which i think yeah. that's right and in fact that you know in that book why liberalism failed i have a chapter on technology in which i kind mm. of make the argument that we tend to think technology shapes us so that Technology has this kind of autonomous mm. existence. And my argument there is that our political, philosophical, and even theological presuppositions might just as powerfully shape our technology. Mm. In other words, what it is we value as a society, being independent, being free of each other, is going to draw us to particular kinds of technologies. Mm. Uh, that one of the examples I give in my book, um, and you know, if you go down my street, you'll see this. Uh, houses built in a certain time period, and we're in one of those houses mm. in this part of the neighborhood I live in. Most of them have front porches. Sadly, mine doesn't, but mm-hmm. most of the houses um, in this neighborhood have front porches. And this was a function of a society that had much more of a stronger commitment to the idea of community mm. and neighborliness. And so that the front porch, of course, was a place where you went to be cool in the summer, possibly, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, um had had certain sort of functions for the house, yeah. but it was also a kind of place that was represented the the in between space between the mm. private and the public realm, and this was something of deep value uh, in a earlier generation. And if you walk down my street toward the university, you'll see houses built after World War II, mm. none of which have front porches. Mm. Um, what they have in the front are garage doors, mm. so you would drive your car straight into the garage. And you would never have to sort of enter that intermediate sphere. Yeah. Uh, and moreover, what many of those have is a back patio, mm. as a, sort of a back back porch. Now, ironically, we're sitting in my back porch yeah, right, right now. <laughs> but this was a house of, that doesn't have a front. <laughs> yeah, I know. I realize <laughs> no. that. What can I do? Uh, yeah. But it is. Um, I think as a, it, it's that's just a kind of physical representation or a very vivid um, demonstration of how. Mm. 
technology is shaped by deeper presuppositions. Yeah. In a society that has certain kinds of values, it's gonna you're gonna see it um, art, uh, manifested mm. in very basic things like how we how we build houses, mm. the architecture of both the exterior and the interior of houses. So houses today, for example, stress much more the private places of mm. the house. So bedrooms are bigger than they used to be. Mm. Bathrooms are way bigger. The kitchen is way bigger. In earlier houses, so here my house is a representative of an older mm. tradition. You would have a living room or kind of what used to be called a parlor, mm -hmm. which is where you would you know, entertain guests. Mm -hmm. And of course, a dining room, which yeah, is where you would right. have these sort of more formal meals. Those have disappeared from yeah. the modern house because we're much more private. Yeah, my wife and I are looking for a house right now. Mm -hmm. And we go to these houses and there's no dining room. And we're like, all right, well, next house or whatever. Or we yeah. try to figure out a way that maybe we could re reshape the house. Right. But it is it is sad because right. that's not, I mean, a lot of families don't eat dinner together anymore. That's right. So that's kind of all, all plays into it. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting. So you, you ended up writing another book this year. Yes. I think this year, right? That yes. came out, Regime Change. Yes. Do you want to tell people a little bit about this? And then we can dive into some of these amazing reviews uh from new york times vox sure. and the washington yeah. post yeah so this book uh, follows on the last book um at the end of the why liberalism failed book i in the last chapter i offered a few very summary thoughts about well what what's next yeah what's um new? and mm -hmm. most of the reviews and responses to that book was oh yeah great diagnosis interesting arguments but you know sparse on the what's next yeah. question that's, of course, that's the harder question in a lot of ways. I mean, the, yeah. the critique of our current order is, yeah. um, I'm, you know, I like to think I had some things to say that not everybody was saying, but it's relatively easier to sort of see the shortcomings of what you have as opposed mm. to um, envisioning what alternatives there are. So uh, this, this most recent book was a kind of effort to, you know, continue and extend aspects of that critique, but also to try to offer some vision of what a post-liberal mm future would look like. So not a, it, I used, and we've adopted the word post-liberal with some reservations that I have, you know, I continue to have, uh, which is it still takes its standard from liberalism. And I kind of, you know, I just want to like envision something that moves beyond liberalism. Well, you, I heard in a podcast, you said the worst, one of the worst names was anti-federalist. Uh, yeah, right. And, yeah, and, exactly. And so, so this has that problem. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's kind of saying the, the the standard by which we still measure ourselves is liberalism. Is liberalism, yeah. But um, uh, it's, to me, it's just a sort of temporary placeholder. Yeah. And I think the language of common good, um, like mm. Adrian Vermeule has written a book called Common Good Constitutionalism. I talk about common good conservatism in this book, Regime Change. This whole language of the common good is really central to, um, you know, to, I think to the vision of what uh, of what we hope to help help advance. Uh, and the book tries to offer um, a more, you know, a kind of positive vision for what a, a social, political, economic order would look like yeah. in in a in a post liberal order. Mm -hmm. And it and it begins where we began, which is to say, rejecting this idea of anthropological individualism. Mm -hmm. Uh, and rejecting the way that especially that has um, one of its practical consequences mm. has been a deepening and worsening class divide mm. in our country. Uh, so sort of uh, part of the consequences of, a, of an individualistic worldview is that it, um, it, it valorizes especially the ability of those to live mm. in that 
um, relationship-less world. Mm -hmm. uh, so Individualistic. Those who, those who can kind of thrive in that mm -hmm. world, uh, those are the winners in our society. Yeah, and right. those, those who can't, those are the losers in our society. And yeah. I was just, just this morning in the New York Times had an article uh, uh, discussing a, a, recent, uh, a more recent book than the, the previous book by Angus Deaton, Mm -hmm. uh, which was about deaths of despair. Mm -hmm. And this updated book is showing just how bad and how extensive deaths of despair are among the lower mm -hmm. class, uh, working class, non-college degreed mm -hmm. part of our country. This should be you know, the, you know, one of the only topics we're talking about mm -hmm. in this country today. You know, we have massive numbers of our fellow countrymen who are dying in just uh, shamefully mm -hmm. large numbers because of essentially self-inflicted uh, forms of uh, sort of attempting to ameliorate their despair. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And as far as I can tell, at the institutions where I teach and the institutions where I travel, and this is largely you know, an irrelevant data point mm -hmm. for many of my uh, fellow academics, mm -hmm. for whom the ongoing obsession with the woke agenda, mm -hmm. you know, identity politics and its attendant um, uh, calls for diversity, equity, and inclusion. This remains the deepest commitment. Part of what I argue in the book is that this agenda of diversity, equity, inclusion, what we call the woke agenda, is a way to keep the class um, forms and the class divide intact. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's a very self-serving form of signaling your commitment to social justice while actually keeping all of the uh, the forms of class division intact. Mm. Uh, and so that you don't actually have to ask hard questions about the ways in which elite institutions like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and so forth are actually contributing mm. to the you know, deep pathological divisions, political divisions of our country. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was thankful that you wrote Regime Change because I think one of the other books that we talked about earlier that maybe maybe you do or don't consider to be within the same stream of diagnosing a problem is is a rise and triumph of the modern self. And I, I read through the whole thing For and sure. I got to the yeah. end and I was like, all right, man, what's the answer? Like, yeah. how, what do we do about it? Yeah. And then the book just ends. Yeah. And I was like, all right, well. I don't know what to do about yeah. this. And so I think that's how a lot of people feel. And then, but you get, you give in a vision in regime change. And it's, it's funny to me how the left, you know, New York times, Washington post they're you know, they're open to the diagnosis. They'll talk about that because it's, it's all this abstract intellectual thinking. But then when you give them a game plan for moving forward, they hate that. Yeah. And so it, tell me about, I guess, yeah, to break down that game plan a little bit more for people and uh, the response. Maybe we can read through some of the responses mm -hmm. from from these. Oh, we don't have to. <laughs> you don't want to relive that. No, although, you know, it's, it's actually I'm, I'm actually I'm really gratified by mm -hmm. these like really harsh negative reviews, which were from both the left and the right. Yeah, and I, and true. I would have thought I had failed had I not elicited those mm -hmm. reviews. Mm -hmm. um, now, of course, some of those reviews I've, were, were over the top negative and yeah. very ad hominem. And, yes, you know, right. But I, you know, look, you're not, you're not, you, you, you're not hitting the mark, mm -hmm. or at least the, it's likely you're not hitting the mark mm -hmm. if you're not provoking intensely oppositional reactions from the people who keep and guard the regime, mm -hmm. whether mm -hmm. it's on the right liberal side, protecting yeah. the economic form of the free market ideology, mm -hmm. or on the left side, keeping the progressive ideal 
of individual autonomy. Mm -hmm. So the fact that it provoked these really hostile reactions from both the kind of the keepers, the guards of the regime mm -hmm. on both the left and the right was really gratifying because because it you know confirmed to me that that you know at the very least struck a nerve. Um, there was yeah that the, the, they were uh, they were concerned uh, and it it uh, it drew a bit of blood as it were. Uh, but the um, so the I guess I could say there are two aspects of what I advance as a positive vision in the book, and the first of these is to propose something that's very old, but we need to rediscover, which is the idea of a mixed constitution, which is a classical idea uh, that begins with the observation that every society is divided between sort of the many poor and the few wealthy, mm -hmm. that, that every society is divided, it has a class division. Yeah. This goes all the way back to Aristotle. This is very ancient. And every society worries about, or at least every good society worries about how do you try to bridge this divide. Mm -hmm. Now, the argument of the classical tradition, again, going back to Aristotle and articulated by a whole lot of thinkers, is that in all likelihood, every society is going to fall apart because of, uh, or if not fall apart, uh, will either experience civil war or tyranny as a result mm -hmm. of this division. It will either be the tyranny of the, more likely the tyranny of the few wealthy over the many poor, but it can also be the tyranny of the many poor over the few wealthy. Mm -hmm. uh, but also very likely, and in fact, probably following on tyranny is the likelihood of civil war uh, as the kind of increasingly hostile mm -hmm. and ultimately violent uh, um, conflict between these two sides of any political order. This is the kind of natural course of things that seems to be built into the fabric of human reality. And so the question is, how does one avoid these fates? And the classical tradition argued that the way to avoid these fates is something called the mixed constitution, which isn't, isn't just checks and balances. It's not just the American way of thinking about this. It's really how do you mix the classes so that the virtues of each class counteract the vices of the other class? Uh, I could go more into mm -hmm. that, but, yeah. but I'll just leave that for a moment. I think that what we have now is a deeply unmixed constitution. I'm not speaking here of the constitution. I'm talking about the way of life in America. Mm. We have an increasingly f sort of divided society mm. uh, in which the wealthy and the well-off and college educated live in certain places. They live at a divide from the kind of working class people. Mm. And there's very little kind of interaction between these people, very little understanding. And so when I was complaining earlier about the lack of any concern with what's happening to our fellow countrymen, I think that in part is just the simple fact that people who go through sort of university life, especially elite university life, never have to interact with people from a different class. Mm -hmm. They never have to, they like, other than going to, you know, buy, you know, food at, you know, McDonald's right. or something, they largely will not have any significant or meaningful interactions because we have organized our political, social, and economic order mm -hmm. to be one of extreme separation, and geographic I think and otherwise. What that does to a lot of people is that it makes them feel superior, obviously, to so that's exactly, uh, the intellectual. Yeah. Right. right. I'm the intellectual. So it, leads, it contributes yeah. to the kind of condescension and disdain. Right. And, it, and of course, on the one side, uh, on, the, on the part of the elites, and it contributes to the sense of resentment mm -hmm. and fury and anger mm -hmm. on the part of the populace. So yeah, you were right. talking earlier of complaining about Donald Trump. Like I'm no, you know, I, I recognize the limitations of and and you know deep mm -hmm. personal problems of, of Donald Trump. But there was a reason he was he was mm -hmm. uh, attractive to 
and inspiring to a whole lot of people who felt that they had now been just sort of discarded mm. by the people who ran our society. Mm. He was chosen precisely because of the mm -hmm. things that puts off people because he was willing to break things and he was willing to say things out loud that nobody else was saying out mm -hmm. loud and he was going to walk into you know there's a story of I recently he walked into mcdonald's with all of these people i can't remember where he was yeah. and he just bought everybody he was he wants to be with the people yeah. he doesn't want to be separated from the people and that's a powerful thing i think for a lot of sure. people who who are angry and frustrated with kind of the elites of the world the right. acad academics and things like that so so what what Really, I think we need to understand what's happening. And this is where Trump, the man, makes this difficult because yeah, he's, right. he absorbs so much attention, so much focus. Mm -hmm. And people are obsessed with talking about Trump, whether they love him or they hate him. But my interest is really in sort of what makes someone like a Trump possible, what makes the rise of a yeah. Trump possible. And it, here I would say that the institutions that I've named previously, these elite institutions I teach at one, and I've taught it, I've named the other ones I've taught at Georgetown and Princeton. These institutions are just as responsible for the rise of Trump and mm -hmm. maybe more responsible for the rise of Trump as anything that was happening out there, mm -hmm. you know, in the heartland and the rural yeah. parts of America. Yeah. In other yeah. words, it's precisely by forming this kind of deeply divided society mm -hmm. and and implicitly mm -hmm. um, a kind of form of self-congratulation and a kind of uh, willingness to cultivated disdain toward mm -hmm. the losers of our society, mm -hmm. that those are the conditions that led to the rise of the person that they are, you know, the people <laughs> in these institutions yeah. all decry. Mm -hmm. and, but there's no real willingness or ability to sort of say, mm -hmm. to look in and say, what ways were we complicit mm -hmm. in this? So the, the book in the first instance um, is an argument for this idea of mixed constitution, trying to update this. What would it look like to have a mixed constitution? So I make a whole lot of various proposals, some of which are you know, probably unrealizable in the current context, but it's really just an effort to say we have to think really differently about yeah. um, about how we, as a as a people, as a citizenry, interact with each other. So one that I am I am quite committed to, though I think it's probably a non-starter in today's world, is some form of national service or some form of service mm. in which one's participation in that um, results in the significant mixing of the classes. And of course, we look back now at the army as one of the great desegregating and mm -hmm. mixing forms, right? Where people of different classes would come, right? So Joe DiMaggio and, yeah, you know, the poorest right. person, the wealthiest person, they would all serve in the army in World War II. There was, you know, you didn't get, you didn't get out of service. Right. Uh, now that's a, that's seen as unpopular in the aftermath of Vietnam. And now with a uh, you know, with an army that runs basically by pushing buttons yeah, and you know, increasingly right. flying drones. But that's a different thing than saying, well, we, sh uh, uh, we shouldn't have national service, mm -hmm. not because of certain technological mm -hmm. or um, military needs and demands, mm -hmm. as opposed to what we need as to sort of help to repair our social, fra uh, our, our social fabric. So National service can take a lot of forms. It doesn't mm -hmm. have to be military service, and that could be part of it. Yeah. But I think it could be. There are lots of ways in which you could pursue national. I think a lot of local, you know, local service yeah. in which you have people from, you know, 
different, like here we are in South Bend. Well, it turns out within, you know, 30 mile range of here, you have a lot of people in from an urban setting. You have a lot of people from a rural setting. You mm-hmm. interact, you know, you know, have our students interact with farmers, local mm-hmm. farmers and so yeah. forth. Yeah. It, it just seems to me that we are, we have concluded that such things are, are non-starters because mm-hmm. we, we begin with a presumption that, well, it's all about our individual choices and selves. Right. Uh, so that mm-hmm. part of the book, of course, was very unpopular with both sides of the political mm-hmm. spectrum because they don't want to have any real mixing. The other part uh, of the argument, and this, I think this part has been largely overlooked by reviewers because it's much more highfalutin, it's, it's uh, more theoretical and philosophical, it talks about um, the, a post-liberalism that moves beyond aspects of liberalism that we were talking mm. about earlier. So how do we repair the broken uh, woof of time? You know, I was saying earlier about how a liberal order has a hostility toward the past. Mm. Well, if you want to have a post-liberal order, it's one that repairs the connections between the past, the present, and the future. Mm-hmm. Now, what's the policy for that? You know, this is what all these reviewers, they want to know what's the policy. Right. Well, you know, there, there are policies that could help right. that. But before you can have the policy, you have to actually articulate the vision. And you have to have a, uh, mm-hmm. you have to understand our order today, or I would say our disorder today, is significantly the result of a deeply broken understanding and experience of time in which Mm. we are all cut off from the past. And when you're cut off from the past, you're also, in an interesting way, cut Mm. off from the future. Uh, Because it means that you can't can't anticipate how we will be in the past of people in the Mm. future. Yeah. Wisdom is a, a, a... Most most of the time, wisdom is gained through experience, yeah. not through knowledge. Yeah. And knowledge and wisdom are two different things. And I think, right, you cut off the past. You're not going to see the horrific thing right in front of you because you don't know that it exists. And that, that and what it does is that we all, when we cut ourselves off from the past and we say the past is this dark place, what we're also really implicitly acknowledging is that as soon as the present is done, that has now entered into the, the bad past. Mm-hmm. So that means that our lifetimes as soon as they are done, will be part of the dark past. And it means that we are basically denigrating our own selves yeah, in the right. relationship to the future. Mm-hmm. And this is why I think, you know, among the reasons why the relationship between the younger and older mm-hmm. is so poisoned right now. I mean, it's not, of course, there are a lot of terrible things that the older generation have done implicitly to the younger generation, but they've also poisoned the well by basically saying the past is a dark place. And therefore, as soon as we're off, off this yeah. picture, we're off the earth, you can now regard us the same way we regard our predecessors. Did, have you read The Pilgrim's Regress by C.S. Lewis? Yes. Yeah. So I'm reading it now. One of the funniest parts is that uh, the main character, John, comes across Mr. Enlightenment. Yeah. And then later on in the book, he comes across Mr. Enlightenment again. But he finds out that it's right. Mr. Enlightenment's son. Who, and he's talking to me. And he's like, I met you before. And, and Mr. Yeah. Enlightenment's son is like, no, no, that was my dad. And he's like, that guy's an idiot. And it was, idiot, a, right? yeah. it was a funny. Precisely. You know, That's exactly. Precisely. Yeah. 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 It's amazing how these these very old themes have to be uh, re, rediscovered and re-articulated. Yeah. So that, yeah, that part of the book... Um, is to my mind, that's the in some ways that's the real core of what a post-liberal mm-hmm. vision would look like. It is one that is uh, really looks to re. I think it's called the chapter is called toward integration, and it mm. and it really argues for the the reversal of the fragmentation that mm. a liberal order introduces into every aspect of life. Yeah, yeah. One thing that you said, you kind of mentioned a. Uh, that we had to start thinking about things differently. And I think for a lot of people, they might be wondering, okay, well, 
why why can't we just kind of fix a couple little things and yeah. it'll, it'll fix the deeper problem but the the issue here is that the deeper problem is a misunderstanding of human nature and human that's anthropology right. and who we are as human beings and that's a deep 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 problem if you that's get right. that wrong everything that grows out of that's that right. is going to be corrupted in some capacity and so that's i agree i think that that's a very very important idea but it means yeah we got to teach our kids and we have to teach the younger generations the what does it mean to be a person what does it mean to be a human because i didn't know what that meant and i thought you know it's just a power game and i just need to get to the top and who cares if i take advantage of people that's just life and that's a horrible way to live yeah yeah so i so i think that um you know, when I think about that last chapter of the book, um, I mean, among other things I talk about as well, uh, you know, I, I'm responding in part to what I see as the deficiencies of, on the one hand, of the contemporary divide between cosmopolitanism, which is especially embraced on the left, and nationalism, which is embraced increasingly on the right. Mm-hmm. And I think both of these, in some ways, are deficient understandings because they're also disintegrating in a way. I mean, mm-hmm. cosmopolitanism claims to be integrating because it wants us to be citizens of the world but in order to be a citizen of the world you have to presumptively hate whatever is particular you have Mm -hmm. to hate what it is you came from or at least dismiss or reject Mm -hmm. it you have to dismiss your own country that's where we see declines of patriotism Mm -hmm. Uh, so it calls on the dismissal or rejection of anything particular in the name of becoming completely universal Mm -hmm. and nationalism has the kind of the opposite problem which is Mm -hmm. to say that we're all just particular we're all just members of these very distinct and limited confined understandings of what the nation is. And I really argue that an integrated understanding sees us as parts of continua, which begins at the very local level. And I think both of Mm -hmm. these visions don't sufficiently valorize and celebrate the local, which is something I've been writing about Mm -hmm. my entire, you know, academic life, which is just to really try to revive and to celebrate and to restore to a rightful place Mm -hmm. the, um, the central uh, importance of locality mm-hmm. and why more of our dedication in lots of ways mm-hmm. should be to our local places than to even the national places mm-hmm. and the global places. Uh, but that's part of a continuum in which the local is, of course, deeply connected mm-hmm. to the communal, to the regional, to the national, and ultimately to the global. And that these. But in that order, it's not. It is in that order, but you can also can't say that one is in some ways separate from the right, other. Right. And, uh, you know, as a Catholic. Um, you know, I, not just because I'm a Catholic, but in part because I'm a Catholic, uh, uh, it, it teaches us the essential importance of this idea of subsidiarity, mm. which too often is, is even by Catholics, is understood, well, the, the local is the most important. And that's kind of a distortion of the teaching, mm. which is that the teaching of subsidiarity is that we should focus on solving whatever issues, problems, mm-hmm. you know, building relationships at the most local level where that's appropriate. And where that's yeah, fitting, right. but not every problem can be mm-hmm. solved or redressed at the local mm-hmm. level, and that ultimately this more integrated understanding of ourselves mm-hmm. as connecting mm-hmm. through the local mm-hmm. up to the regional, to the national, and so yeah. forth—that's an integrated understanding of what ultimately subsidiarity is. Right. I mean, that's the beauty of uh, what I've recognized. I, I just read maybe a year ago, The Heritage of Anglican Theology by J.I. Packer. Mm-hmm. And I, I did not know anything about Anglicanism. And I grew up in low church evangelicalism. And so to me, all the ritualistic stuff seemed to be in some ways heresy, even though I didn't totally understand it, just I grew up in that. And yet after I read that book, I became 
very attracted to the idea that there's some there's there's obviously good in that low church evangelical personal conviction but you can't have that done properly without a high church uh, authoritative structure put into place and certain practices and rituals that you might not know why you have to do it all the time but that they're actually uh, I mean, uh, turning your affections towards Christ in, mm-hmm. in the proper ways. And that can be done, bo- that needs to be done both at a high level and at a personal level. And that, mm-hmm. I think that that balance is, the, is a difficult balance that people are trying to figure out, whether it's in church or in society at large. Um, okay, I got to ask you one more question before okay. we finish this thing off. Uh, this might be the most important question. Vox does start their review by saying that you hate liberals. <laughs> uh, so do you hate liberals? That's, I uh, know, I, that's a yeah. It's a strange claim. Um, I I certainly uh, uh, reject and regard liberalism as a mistake. I think it's a mistake at the level as we've been talking at the level of anthropology. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, at the level of what we think human nature is, and just as um, just as communism was based upon a false view of human anthropology, right? Communism in some ways was the opposite of liberalism, which is the claim that we are not individuals, right? right? right. That if we have the right political order, we can cease to be individuals and we'll be species beings. Well, that was, you know, that was clearly a mistaken view of human nature. Uh, and yet people have such a vested interest in maintaining this particular order that it just, it just seems to me uh, on the basis of not just philosophical reflection, but also uh, many of the things we've been talking about uh, is, is, is just plainly a, a distorting uh, political order that rests on a false anthropology mm-hmm. of human beings. Uh, so liberalism, I reject. Mm-hmm. Liberals are people who generally, generally have been shaped and formed by the political order that we live in, mm-hmm. right? So every human being essentially is shaped and formed by the political, social, theological order mm-hmm. they live in. And it's just forms, you know, to use the old analogy, it forms the water in which they swim. It's yeah. like a fish yeah. swimming in a fishbowl and you don't see it. Mm-hmm. So most liberals are just unconscious of what it is uh, that, you know, the extent to which they are liberals. And many people who've read my book uh, write to me and say how it was like this moment of shocking awakening mm-hmm. that suddenly they saw the water. And yeah. seeing the water made them realize that oh, this water is dirty and it's not mm-hmm. healthy for me. Uh, so that I find those those kinds of you know frequent responses to the Why Liberalism Failed book uh, to be deeply gratifying because that's precisely what I wanted to do. I wanted to put a little bit of food dye mm-hmm. into our fishbowl. Uh, those that's most most liberals are, are just people mm-hmm. who are shaped by the the nature of the regime. Now mm-hmm. there there are of course regime apologists and those mm-hmm. are people who are aware of what. Uh, of what the nature of the water is. And they like the nature of the water. And in many cases, because they are benefiting from this particular kind of water. And for them, it's, you know, it's a matter of kind of self-interest to continue Mm. to defend this order. Now, many do so not merely because of self-interest, but because they think this is right, good, and true. Mm. And in that case, this is really just, then we're engaged in a deeply philosophical debate in the same way Mm. John Locke was having a debate against Robert Filmer Mm. or... Uh, Bellarmine was having an argument against various Protestant Reformation mm-hmm. figures. I mean, so this is what human beings do. Mm-hmm. We debate with each other. Mm-hmm. And sometimes those debates are about the deepest things of meaning and significance in how we shape our world. Mm-hmm. Now, is that hatred or is that what we do? Mm-hmm. Because that what it, that's what it is uh, to be a human being is to investigate, mm-hmm. uh, to analyze, to make arguments, 
and at times to reject certain claims and positions. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't say that it's hatred. Now, the, the worry, of course, is always that when you get at this deep subterranean level of the political nature mm. of our society, that can elicit deep and profound emotional yeah, reactions, right. you know, to the point where, you know, well, Protestant Reformation, yeah, you know, Catholic right. reaction, right? People start killing each other. Mm. I wrote this book, Regime Change, because I don't want us to be killing each other. Mm. And I think the only way for us not to devolve into a civil war potentially is by redressing this deepening divide in our country mm. and to stop just saying, well, the other side has to be eliminated. Mm. The elites have to be eliminated or the populists have to be eliminated. And based on my reading of very old political philosophy and history, those two classes of society never disappear. They get redefined, they yeah. get relabeled, mm -hmm. uh, so it's helpful, but, helpful. but they never disappear. Yeah. And so we'd better find a way right. for us to do a better job uh, than we're doing right now. Yeah, that was what was helpful with the rise of Jordan Peterson for a lot of people, mm -hmm. that he kind of opened up our eyes to the natural law of hierarchy that no matter what happens, there's yeah. going to be a hierarchy. It will, it, a new one will form even if you destroy the yeah, old one course. and there'll be new elites. Well, that's, I think that's always true. It's always going to be a question of what's, um, what's the sort of animating principle of the elites. Mm -hmm. And part of my argument is that if we want to have a good society, if we want to have a mm -hmm. good political order, we need an elite who is oriented to and informed by the needs and concerns of the many. Mm -hmm. And so there has to be a stronger alignment between the many and the few. That's really the argument of the mixed constitution. Mm -hmm. I think too much of Jordan Peterson, and I respect a lot of yeah. his views, but too much of it is kind of self-help. Like yes, literally totally, self-help. Totally. And I think really what I'm arguing is that self-help is not enough mm -hmm. because the order itself mm -hmm. shapes the extent to which we can help ourselves. Mm -hmm. And self-help is really just ultimately a liberal balm mm -hmm on a highly individualistic society that is the source of the problem in the mm -hmm. first place. So yeah. self-help will not save people for whom self-help means medicating ourselves mm -hmm. to death, mm -hmm. drinking ourselves to death, or ultimately just committing suicide. Mm -hmm. That's It's not enough just to say, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Right. Or even psychologizing the fundamental yeah. truths of scripture, which I think is right. something that he does. Yeah. It's yeah. annoying. Yeah. So I, so I appreciate very much at, 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 a, you know, at, at a very fundamental level, the fact that yes, all societies are hierarchical. There'll always be an elite, but we need a better elite. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Well, I mean, uh, we could talk all day, but I know you have something to get to, and uh, we need to explore. My wife and I do explore, need to explore South yes. Bend. So, uh, where can people find you um, if they want to? Obviously, you have your books, and you have the Post Liberal Order. I'm sure you're on social media, but anything else? Yeah, I mean, uh, so uh, we do. We began by talking about the Substack Post Liberal Order. Uh, People are certainly welcome to read and subscribe. Uh, there's, um, uh, yeah, my books are available on all all websites. Mm. And uh, uh, the most recent book, Regime Change, uh, was published by Sentinel Press, which is mm. a subsidiary of uh, Penguin Random House. Oh, nice. So you can buy it directly from the publisher or find it on, you know, an unnamed website. <laughs> uh, uh, but I'm... Uh, uh, I'm gratified by our discussion. Thanks for making the trip. Yeah, I here. appreciate appreciate you letting me into your house. Thanks so much. You bet.